The ingredients for this episode are Lulu, Disposable, and Bushwhacker. I'm Andy Anderson, the Mischievous Maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. Lulu is an opera in three acts by Alban Berg. The opera was composed from 1929 to 1935 and premiered incomplete in 1937. The complete version was finally premiered in 1979. Berg adapted the libretto from Frank Vindekent's two plays called the Lulu Plays, the first one called Erdgeist, or Earth Spirit, from 1895, and the second one, the Busca der Pandora, or Pandora's Box, from 1904. The opera tells the story of a mysterious young woman known as Lulu, who follows a downward spiral from a well-kept mistress in Vienna to a street prostitute in London, all while being both a victim and a purveyor of destruction. It explores the idea of femme fatale and the duality between her feminine and masculine qualities. So, Lulu, Here in the High Court of the Mischievous Maestro, the charges brought up against you are as follows. Adultery, fraud, first-degree murder, second-degree murder, escape from imprisonment, and prostitution. How do you plead? Nine. 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 We, the High Court of the Mischievous Maestro, find you guilty and incredibly intriguing. So my friends, before we go any further, we definitely need a drink. Let's make a bushwhacker, shall we? And why a bushwhacker while talking about Lulu, you may ask? Well, kind of like Lulu, it starts off a little sweet, and then a little later it makes your head spin, and finally, it causes you to be face down in a puddle of regret. So in order to make a bushwhacker, here's what you're going to need. Go to your bar and get the following. You're going to need some light rum, spiced rum, coffee liqueur, or sometimes known as that brand name, Kahlua, amaretto, and dark creme de cacao. From your freezer, you're going to need some crushed ice and some vanilla ice cream. So here we go. In your blender, add one ounce of light rum, one ounce of spiced rum, one ounce of the coffee liqueur, one ounce of amaretto, and two ounces of the dark creme de cacao. Now, four scoops of vanilla ice cream, 
And I use French vanilla just because it's a little more vanilla-y flavor, but whatever you got in the freezer. Throw in a little crushed ice, half a cup or so, maybe a little more depending on the consistency that you want. Put your lid on your blender and let it go. And now my friends, pour that into a frosty glass. Garnish it with a cherry and enjoy. There you go, a bushwhacker, the perfect cocktail to go with this episode. Berg was familiar with Wittekent's play Earth Spirit by 1903 when he was just 19 years old. And he also saw Pandora's Box in 1905 in a production by Karl Krauss in May and was inspired by the introductory speech that Krauss had delivered on the occasion. In Vita Kent's two Lulu plays, now often performed together under that title, Earth Spirit forms the basis for Act 1 and Act 2, Scene 1 of the opera, and it ends with her shooting Dr. Schoen while Pandora's Box forms the basis for the rest of Act 2 and Act 3, Lulu's imprisonment, the escape, and the subsequent decline and murder. Side note. Benjamin Franklin Wiedekind was born on July 24, 1864, and died on March the 9th, 1918, and he usually just goes by Frank. He was a German playwright, and his work, which often criticizes bourgeois attitudes, particularly towards sex, is considered an anticipation to expressionism and was influential in the development of epic theater. In the English-speaking world, before 2006, Wiedekind was best known for the Lulu cycle, but his earlier play, Frühlings Erwachend, from 1891, became well-known because of the Broadway musical adaptation, Spring Awakening. Berg did not begin work on Lulu until after he had completed his other opera, Wozzeck, in 1929. And thanks to Wozzeck's success, Berg had the economic security that enabled him to embark on a second opera. However, Life for the musical world was becoming increasingly difficult in the 1930s, both in Vienna and Germany, due to the rising anti-Semitism and the Nazi cultural ideology that denounced the music of Berg, Webern, and others. Even to have an association with someone who was Jewish could lead to denunciation, and Berg had studied with the Jewish composer Arnold Schoenberg. Fotzek's success was short-lived as theater after theater succumbed to political pressure and refused to produce it. All the while, the sets and the costumes and the scenery were all systematically destroyed. Wozzeck was also banned in the Soviet Union and labeled bourgeois. Berg found that opportunities for his work to be performed in Germany were growing scarce, and in September of 1935, his music was prescribed as degenerate music under the label of cultural Bolshevism. Despite these conditions, Berg worked on the score of Lulu in seclusion at his lodge, the Waldhaus. In the spring of 1934, he learned from the conductor Wilhelm Furtwangler that production of Lulu in Berlin would be impossible under the current cultural and political situation. It was at this point that he set the work on the opera aside to prepare a concert suite in the event that the opera could never be performed, and also considered expanding it into a symphony titled Lulu, which would include a soprano with the orchestra. 
The conductor Eric Kleiber performed the suite at the Berlin State Opera on November 30, 1934, and despite an enthusiastic reception by some sections of the audience, the authorities prompted Kleiber's resignation four days later and departure from Germany quickly thereafter. In particular, the reaction of periodicals such as Die Musik and Zeitschrift für Musik was exceptionally hostile. And friends, if you don't know those two periodicals, even if you don't read German, you can find them online in English. Holy cow, these people are mean critics. But anyway, I digress. A few days later, on December the 7th, Joseph Goebbels made a speech equating atonality with, quote, the Jewish intellectual infection, end quote, while a January 1935 issue of Die Musik suggested that any reviewer who had written anything favorable about the suite should be dismissed immediately. Lulu is a bewildering tale that has all the marks of German expressionism, overwrought emotion, violent lurches in narrative, and characters who are hastily sketched social types lacking in three-dimensional reality. The tragedy traces Lulu's rise and fall as she navigates the sea of men who compete for her affections. One after another, they succumb to her uncanny charms as she ascends the rungs of society to bourgeois respectability. In the first act, she is introduced as the wife of a physician, Dr. Gall, and a mistress to Dr. Schoen, a wealthy newspaper man who wishes to keep their affair a secret. The painter, who has been hired to do Lulu's portrait, tries to seduce her, and at the very moment of this attempt, the physician bursts into the room. Shocked by what he sees, he falls dead from a heart attack. Lulu, now flush with wealth, marries the painter. Later, Dr. Schoen decides to marry a young woman from polite society and needs to cast his mistress, Lulu, aside. He tells the painter of her unseemly past, and the latter is so annihilated by the truth that he takes his own life. But Dr. Schoen realizes that he can't tear himself away from Lulu after all, so he breaks off his engagement and marries Lulu. The second act finds Lulu as a woman of high society, basking in her riches and attracting admirers both young and old, including the lesbian Countess Geschwitz and Oliver, Dr. Schoen's son. Outraged, Dr. Schoen gives Lulu a revolver and insists that she kills herself. But 
Lulu kills Dr. Shearn instead, then pleads with Oliva, his son, to save her from the police. opera, the action on stage now comes to a pause. An orchestral interlude accompanies a filmed sequence that tells us of Lulu's subsequent troubles. She is arrested, tried for murder, and sent to prison. By the way, all of these stage directions were written by Berg, and he insisted that it be film shown during the interlude. During her confinement, she is stricken with cholera and must be taken to a hospital. The countess, Deeply in love with Lulu, devises a plan to contract cholera as well so that she can change places with Lulu and aid in her escape. Alva then declares his love for her, and Lulu runs away with him to Paris. The third act shows us Lulu's downfall. Threatened with blackmail, she barely evades a second arrest and ends up destitute in a shabby London apartment with Alva, who is stricken with syphilis. Reduced to prostitution, Lulu is nonetheless still being courted by the Countess and others. Lulu lures a string of men to the flat, including an African prince who murders Oliva in a struggle. While the Countess gazes at Lulu's portrait, Lulu brings home one final client, Jack the Ripper. The Countess hears Lulu's screams and runs to her defense, but Jack has already killed Lulu and he stabs the Countess as well. As the play comes to an end, Jack washes his hands and complains that there is no towel for him to dry them. The Countess, alone on the stage and with her last breath, sings her Liebestod, her love song to Lulu.
side note, as Lulu is seducing Alva, they are on a sofa, and she says to him, quote, Is das noch der Divan, auf dem sich dein Vater verblutet hat? Or, isn't that the sofa on which your father bled to death? By the way, for the opera, Berg streamlined the plot and simplified the dialogue to render it more suitable to song, but he did little to modify the play's basic architecture. One of the small changes that he made, Alva became a composer, a change that suggests Berg's identification with the character. And if you look closely, Berg even put that Alva echoes Alban. An atmosphere of misogyny pervades the action from beginning to end. In a brief prologue that precedes the first act, a character called the Animal Trainer, sporting, of course, a whip and a loaded revolver, introduces Lulu as a snake who was, quote, created to stir up disaster, to lure, seduce, and poison. The unexpected cameo by Jack the Ripper in the final scene turns Lulu into a commentary on the narrative conventions of 19th century opera that routinely condemn the heroines to violent deaths. After all, Lulu herself is not the source of sin, but only the occasion for the men who surround her to revel in their own moral corruption. Dr. Schoen is pleased to keep her as a mistress until the moment that he needs to establish his reputation in polite society. Unlike Lulu, he uses love as an instrument for the most cynical ends to advance his career. Only Lulu is honest in her intentions. Granted, the opera is thick with bloodshed and betrayal, but if there is a higher principle that manages to survive all of this inhumanity, it can be heard in Lulu's candid line, quote, I can't love by command. Berg was a man fascinated by symmetry, and his opera is littered with palindromes and numerological symbolism. Lulu's name is a repetition of syllables. One of her alternate names, Eve, is a true palindrome. The film interlude at the opera center depicting her arrest, imprisonment, and her path to escape has a palindromic form. In the middle of measure 687, which is the exact middle of the scene, this is when Lulu languishes in jail, the music actually starts to run backward, making her imprisonment the dramatic and formal pivot of the entire opera. More striking still, Berg's instructions require that some performers double up on their roles. The performers who play Lulu's three husbands early on in the opera return as her three clients once she is reduced to prostitution at the opera's end. The score expressly indicates that the same performer absolutely should play both Dr. Schoen and Jack the Ripper, highlighting the violence that lurks within patriarchal marriage. Only the Countess is what she appears to be, by herself, a woman truly in love. The troubles that have afflicted productions of Lulu ever since its 1937 Zurich premiere have been due in part to the composer's widow. After her initial attempts to secure assistance in completing the orchestration, Helen Berg grew strangely resistant to any further efforts. Side note, Alban Berg died before he could complete the orchestration of Act 3. And doesn't that sound a little bit like Puccini not finishing Act 3 of his last opera, Turandot? But you may ask, what did Alban Berg die from? Well, 
he died from an infection caused by an insect sting. It was George Perrell who unlocked the mystery of why the composer's widow did not want the opera completed. In 1977, he discovered an annotated score of Berg's lyric suite written in the composer's own hand, whereby Berg dedicated the work to Hannah Fuchs, the wife of a Prague industrialist and the sister of the Austrian novelist Franz Werfel. In his own script, Berg had written, quote, for whom and only for whom, in spite of the official dedication, every note of this work was written, end quote. The score was annotated in scrupulous detail with color-coded inks to reveal the entire work's hidden meaning. Berg had even combined his own initials with Hannah's initials to form a basic, quote, cell or a musical figure that serves as compositional raw material for the score. And he identified two numbers, the number 10 and the number 23, as, quote, our numbers, as the keys to the lyric suite which he encoded into the score with skill, determining, for example, how many measures are in each movement. The secret meaning of the lyric suite also made its way into Lulu, where Berg made special use of two notes, H, that is, B, and F, for Hannah Fuchs. This is especially true in the opera's final act, when the Countess, in her last moments of life, cries out, quote, Ich bin der Nah, bleibe der Nah in Ewigkeit. Or, translated, I remain close to you and shall remain so in eternity. This is truly a statement of love and presumably Berg's message to Hannah. Helen Berg, who knew of her husband's love for Hannah Fuchs, went to great lengths to obstruct the completion of the opera. She died in 1976 in the fully orchestrated version finally premiered in Paris three years later, conducted by Pierre Boulet. Side note, in Germany, Central and Eastern Europe, and Scandinavia, the label B is sometimes used for what is called B-flat, and the note a half-step below C is called H. Theodore Adorno, a Frankfurt School philosopher who studied composition with Berg in the 1920s, said, quote, Lulu is one of those works that reveals the extent of its quality the longer and more deeply one immerses oneself in it, end quote. Lulu once labored under the reputation of, quote, decadence, a term used by the Nazis and others to conjure up fearful scenes of the immoral and the grotesque. But that reputation is undeserved. If the libretto sets free a thousand demons from Pandora's box, its sonic landscape offers more than what Adorno called, quote, allegories of permanent catastrophe, end quote. It also gives voice to a strange kind of hope, a longing for what has escaped repression.
So my friends, here we are at the end of the episode, and I hope this has inspired you to dive into this dodecaphonic masterpiece. After all, she might be blood-soaked and beautiful, but Lulu ranks among the greatest and most disturbing operas of the 20th century. In our next episode, the High Court of the Mischievous Maestro will be hearing the case against Mozart's hellbound baritone, Don Giovanni. Until then, continue to be safe, my friends, and as always, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast was researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer is Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to the Mischievous Maestro and co-producer is Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-around great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, don't forget to visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast, it's a lifestyle. And I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or in any part without the expressed written permission of Andy Anderson.